0: It's not easy butchering people. It's hard work. Physically and mentally, I don't think people realize you need to vent. 40 years ago, your FBI was founded hunting down John Dillinger. Now, we have extreme violence between strangers. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com Wondery.
1: Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. And hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. You can live out your master chef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.
2: I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. She went out to a party. She got soused. She came home alone. I asked her how her evening went. She just looked at me. She said for seven years... He said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. So I got a claw hammer, and I beat her to death. Then I
0: cut her head off, and I humiliated her. And I said, there, now you've had sex. If there's one thing I know, it's this. A mother should not scorn her own son. If a woman humiliates her little boy, he will become hostile
3: and violent and debased. Period. Period. Hello and welcome to Real Crime Profiles. Jim Clementi, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is
4: Laura Richards, Criminal Behavioral Analyst, former New Scotland Yard, and author of the Dash Risk Assessment Model and the book Policing Domestic Violence. And I'm Lisa Zambetti.
2: I am the casting director for Criminal Minds. Do you notice how I I used a deeper voice because we're trying to have more gravitas?
4: (laughs) You You have gravitas. You're good as you are.
2: (laughs) Um, Laura has incredible lighting right now. Everybody, you can't see her, but she's the best lit in this room and she looks absolutely stunning. Just had to point that out.
4: Thank you, Lisa. It's very kind, (laughs) as do both of you. And I'm delighted to be back here with you both to talk about. Mind Hunter and various other things that come out of it. Yeah,
3: it's great to have everybody back in the studio again. And what's amazing is Laura and I are about to embark on the production schedule for the latest iteration of The Case Of. We can't yet announce who we're investigating, but we can say it's going to be just as compelling or even more.
2: It's huge. This is like... One of the hugest, uh, you guys are going to lose your minds when you find out what they're investigating. I can barely c- contain myself.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, Laura and I are both really interested in this investigation because there are really contentious aspects of this case that we want to find out. We want to get to the bottom of, and we'll pull together a team of experts that will help us go through the, the evidence in this case and figure out what really happened. So I'm looking um, forward to that. What about you, Laura?
4: Well, once again, Jim, we're on the eve of just about to uh, leap off into, is it the abyss? I don't know. It's certainly (laughs) the the unknown. And, you know, we feel very strongly about putting the victim's voice at the centre of all that we do. And this is a case where really there hasn't been any justice. And this particular victim, we want to... Give them a voice and, as Jim said, go through all the facts and the evidence, strip everything back to the basics, not what people's opinions are or were, not the speculation, but go right back to the, to the start where it all began. So, you know, excited's the wrong word. I, I feel anticipation about it, but I think it's a really important case for us to, to deep dive and get to the bottom of what really went on.
3: Great. Um, so... So we're back together to talk about the Netflix original series Mindhunter, and this is produced by John Douglas, my mentor at the Behavioral Analysis Unit, as well as Charlize Theron and David Fincher, and what a great team! Oh yeah, and the work they put together is just outrageously good, and it's not something that's uh, it's not the Fast and Furious uh, at all. It's very thoughtful and deliberate and it goes through the history and you understand. I think people who watch that will understand a lot more about where criminal minds came from and why we say the things we say and how we do the things we do. It's really great how they, they're they showing how fundamentally they built this unit in order to study these types of offenders.
4: And it is much more of a slow burner. And. Ironically, it's a deep dive at the same time. So I think those two things work quite well. But I think the genesis of this show is quite interesting as well. Um, you mentioned John Douglas, who was your mentor, and he's also someone that that I got to know. But there was also in the background of this um, Robert Ressler's book, mm. Whoever Fights Monsters, which I'm sure you read, Jim, yeah, as sure. did I. And you know that was one of the, the key books that actually inspired me to... Um, certainly join New Scotland Yard and to want to work at the FBI, which I was very grateful to to have a secondment there. But I think the genesis of it was quite interesting of the project because Charlize Tyrone had picked up John Douglas's book and had handed it to David Fincher. But David Fincher had read Robert Ressler's book before that, But it was the timing. And I Mm. think timing's everything, isn't it? With serendipity and synchronicity that Charlie's Tiron then um, went back to David Fincher and said, you know, the time's really now if we're going to do this. And they both signed up to be the executive producers. And certainly those two books have been really important to to my career and helping shape and inspire me as to what I wanted to do. And I went to New Scotland Yard and there was a scientific intelligence unit there, which I was given a placement to. That went on to become the sexual offences section, but it was very much modelled on the behavioural analysis units at uh, the FBI. And I think that there were a number of other movies and shows actually that also, you know, our listeners will probably recall. And and two of them, although it's the same, one of them is the same. It was actually called Red Dragon. Um, in 2002 so in 1986 there was a film called Manhunter and that was very much sort of the Hannibal Lecter-esque um, portrayal by um, Harris and that really did sow a seed in my mind about the type of work that I wanted to do and it then went on to I think be remade as Red Dragon later on in 2002 and then, of course, in between that, you had Silence of the Lambs, which was really sort of the second part to it. And Silence of the Lambs, many people may remember, was uh, the opening sequence was Jodie Foster running the Yellow Brick Road. And that was always in my mind, you know, what an incredible thing to do as part of new agents training. Um, yep. And <laughs> What's
2: the Yellow Brick Road? I
4: missed that
3: one. It's a 5K run through the woods, but there's obstacles throughout it and... Uh, the most important ones, I guess, are this huge net fence that you have to climb up. There's sort of a ravine where you have to do some uh, reverse repelling. Use a rope to climb up the sides of these rocks. Um, there's a like a fifty foot long trench of mud and water that was fun running through in February.
4: You have to go up things down things. you know yeah. you have to get yourself through you know various obstacles. I believe when I did it, it was about 92 degrees heat, so it was slightly different from I did from the opposite, experience. yeah.
3: So when I did it, I remember um, running through that mud pit. Uh, I lost one of my shoes, and I couldn't get it out of the mud. So I literally had to take off my other shoe and run the rest of it in my socks. But you never stop. I mean, you, mm. ke- you you don't have a choice, so... That was that was quite a day.
4: I wasn't sure whether it was 3 miles down to the assault course and it was 3 miles actually on the ass- assault course and then 3 miles back. I mean it certainly it seemed be a- to be uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a challenge for sure. And I guess, you know, what they were trying to portray is just what new agents go through. And we don't really get a huge sense of this in the Netflix current show, no. just of what new agents go through. And I think probably our listeners, listeners would be interested to hear a bit more about that, Jim. And I, I know certainly running the Yellow Brick Road and getting my yellow brick at the end of it and standing by the Tree of Pain. Right. Do you remember that? Yes, I Having do. my picture taken. I had the shirt on with the Tree of Pain on the back. Um, you know, it was one of the real highlights in, in my career and it's something I hold very dear when I see my yellow brick. That mm-hmm. that means a lot to me.
3: Yeah, I I don't remember um why the Tree of Pain was called the Tree of Pain. Do you?
4: I have a vague idea, Jim. <laughs> it certainly wasn't a breeze doing <clears throat> no, new wasn't. agents training and that the physicality of it right. uh well, was I significant remember, too.
3: Yeah, you, you periodically have to take fit tests, fitness tests and you do one the first day you get there for basic qualification and then and then you keep doing them and you have to improve and one of the problems that i had was when we ran the sprint it was indoors and you started laying on your back with a cone at your head you jumped up you spun around and you ran back and forth i think six laps or three laps there back there back there back right so you have to do three 180 degree turns i had broken my left ankle um, years before. And I broke it and my leg in three places. And uh, so I can't really turn left really sharply. So I had to, I'd step past the last cone and swivel backwards and then run forward. And I did it and I had the fastest time in the class. I was doing it because I couldn't make that left turn without kind of wiping out. And so... Since I had the fastest time, everybody else started copying the way I was turning around. <laughs> the way you thinking, were pivoting because yes, you had an injury. Yes. They didn't know that it was an injury. So, but the other thing was when you jump up and then you're zigzagging back and forth in this anaerobic environment in the gym. Every time I finished running that race, although I always won the race, I would run into the men's room and puke my guts out. <sighs> and that was not fun, but I kind of got a reputation for that. But then we had to go out and run the two mile right after that and that was pretty tough so when i was puking my guts up the the our fit trainer bill rogers who's an amazing guy and just so fit and unfortunately he got cancer sometime after i did and and he passed away but he always said, if the end of the world was coming, I'd get my family together and we'd go on a 10K run. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know? He's, he
4: sounds like my kind of guy. Yeah,
3: definitely a fitness guy. But he, would, he, he saw me puking and he said, all right, you sit this out, two-mile run. And I was so afraid I was going to get what's called recycled. In other words, if you don't pass the fit test, they put you in a menial job for a couple months and then you come back again later. And that's the last thing I wanted to do. So. So he told me to just go wait in the nurse's office. So I waited for a little while, and I said, look, I, I just said to myself, I can't do this. I feel great. I'm fine. I put my sneakers on, and I ran back outside and got online line just in time for them to start the two-mile. And I ran it. And he saw me out there, and he, like, he let me finish the race. And then he said, I want to see you in my office. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> he goes, I gave you a direct order oh. And I said, well, I thought you just were trying to protect me, and I'm fine. A little throwing up isn't going to hurt me. Anyway, in the end, he said, you know, that was dedication, and you did go out and do it. It's not like you quit against my orders. It's, right. So anyway, I did pass everything, and that was fine. But that was just the beginning, because basically throughout the entire time, there's so many... I guess, hurdles you have to jump over, whether it's firearms or educational testing or physical or arrest procedures or practical applications, you're being tested all the time. And when we did what's called the leadership reaction course, which is a, it's a course on the Marine base where where people are put together with, as a team, with an impossible task. Get this, you know, 50-gallon drum over that wall. You have three feet of rope, one 10-foot uh, 2x4, and a plastic bag. And, and you have to cross this, this pit with water in it, and you, know, you, have to do also, you have to be very inventive and make human bridges and do all sorts of stuff, but you can only do it by cooperating together. So you have to think really hard to do this. So what they do is they make you run five miles before each station. Now, the day we did this, it was in February, it was snowing, they'd closed the Marine base because it was like minus seven degrees, they had closed it to act outdoor activity, and yet we were out there with Mr. Rogers running five miles between each station, I was sick, I had the flu, but I didn't want to quit, again, I'd kind of run into the bushes and puke my guts up and then finish the run, and by the end of it, on the bus going back to the academy. I, my body was just shivering, and I had been dehydrated, and I ended up hospitalized and all that. But again, it was a weekend, so I made it back to Monday for the next test, so I didn't, I didn't miss anything.
4: That's quite a story. I mean, two-day recovery as well, but that mm. shows real personal toughness to get through those things, particularly when you're feeling unwell physically yeah. to yeah, put your body to the test like that.
3: Everybody has to do it, though. You
2: know? But I have a quick question about that because I know the FBI looks for all different kinds of people mm. and maybe some of them are not going to be the fittest, but they have an amazing mind or they're an amazing linguist. Like, ha- They just have to just push through it? Or? Yes, yeah. you.
3: that's the thing. They do have know, pretty serious minimum physical standards for the job of special agent. And by the way, special agent was created not in the beginning of the FBI, but Hoover realized that most of the agents, FBI agents, were political appointees. And many of them didn't have the background, experience, intellect to actually do the complicated cases that he wanted to do in the FBI. So he's created a special category called special agent and you needed to have three years of work experience, a college degree, and some uh, special skills that the FBI wanted, like being an accountant or being a lawyer. So those are the special agents, that category. And now that's expanded to five different categories. So you have law, accounting, science, language, and then diversified. And diversified is basically any college degree But you have to have some kind of skill that the FBI wants. And I think that's broadened the scope of who was able to get into the FBI. But you Mm -hmm. still have to have the physical ability because they believe that every FBI agent should be able to perform the job of every other FBI agent. But there are analysts who help the FBI agents do their investigations and sometimes even, you know, come up with the investigation itself and Analysts don't have those same stringent gotcha. physical requirements. Okay, okay cool.
4: Good to know. Yeah, and when I w- worked over there, you know, I was exposed to—I'd probably say, you know, the the one percent, la creme de la creme. How I saw it, you had the psychologists, you have you know people who were lawyers. I worked with some of the analysts, and you know, most of the people who worked in the BAUs were very well traveled. Many of them spoke multiple languages. Um, they certainly took what they did very seriously, but the the blend when you all get together to talk about one case is just um, incredible because people see see things from their own professional perspective, um, and it's really the sum of all of those uh, different opinions based on you know one case that you're seeing the, the the facts and the evidence. That
2: must be hard to be the manager, or how, what you, what would you call who's the head of all those people?
3: Well, in the <clears throat> I'm sorry, in the in the BAU or in the academy? Uh,
2: I guess I don't know. I guess in the BAU when you're in trying to BAU. solve something, yeah. Right.
3: So in the Behavioral Analysis Unit, we have a unit chief, and basically the unit chief is like the the police captain uh, of the squad, and above that there's a Deputy Assistant Director and Assistant Director running Sir Critical Incident Response Group.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
3: Specifically, the death drive. What's that? Something my kid does with a stick shift. <laughs> Freud suggests that there's an innate desire for destruction, based on the propensity for
1: matter to return... What does this have to do with motive? Well, is it merely prurient? He could be motivated by something he doesn't even understand. Our new quest, like Freud, is to look
3: beyond what we assume are obvious impulses. So why didn't you just say that? We're
2: going left off at the end of episode two, where we come to meet, um... Ed Kemper, the, the notorious um, so-called co-ed murderer. And unfortunately, last night, I feel really ashamed to say this, but I did go back and look at the real Ed Kemper because I was just kind of curious as to what he was like. And, you know, he was his hunting ground was very near where I grew up, where my wow. grandparents lived. He lived very close to where my grandparents lived wow. uh, in Aptos. And so I was kind of watching him and oh, my God, I, I just boy, scary, dude, very scary, if it's scary in his sanity, in, in his logic.
4: You know, I don't know. It's it's humanizing it, isn't it? And I think that's what this show in particular does. It's the story around how the the behavioral units formed and certainly around the serial killer study, if you will. But it's also about humanizing, you know, because people, they are human. They may be psychopaths, but they are human. So you understand much more about the inner narrative and the decision-making and where they've come from. That's not to say you excuse it, but you understand it and i think what cameron britton does very well and i did a little research around just him and how he got into this you know particular role and apparently he just researched like crazy i mean he read absolutely everything and they kept him pure so they didn't it was only when they started to read lines that they brought him in mm. and they kept it very pure to the point that jonathan groff actually said that when being in la and in a studio he was terrified he sat in the room knowing that they were acting, but was just terrified because it was just so real.
3: Yeah. yeah. You can't and fake that reaction. I know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. watching it. Yeah. Because I've been in those prisons interviewing those guys yeah. and watching it, it brought back sort of flashbacks of of stress because traumatic stress. Because when you're in there, you have to pretend everything's fine. But these are killers who have nothing to lose. They could never get more time. You know, they're just in there for their life. How many life sentences do they have? It's not going to thwart any kind of, you know, attack on you. It's not going to be prevented just because they could get locked up more. So they, they, you know, and they would get a badge of courage if they attacked and did something or killed an FBI agent. So it was very, very illuminating seeing his reaction, and it seemed so real and visceral.
4: Right. So the, the physiology of it, Jim, is just interesting, you know, because you can get a sense from the the agents that underneath it all, there is complete panic and fear. And, you know, the exterior has to show completely the opposite of that. Right. And that kind of inner conflict, but constantly having to check your exterior must be exhausting in that moment.
3: You know, on top of that, you're thinking, you're trying to double and triple think everything this guy is saying and, and you, how, how best to approach it a subject and how to fix it when things start falling apart and how to encourage him to tell the truth and not just bullshit you so all those things are going on all the time and it's very interesting work though it's it's fascinating being sort of behind the lines there but it's also scary being locked into a prison with some of the worst killers of all time
4: right and what they what this show does particularly well is gives a human face to, to both sides you know, that the agents are human beings, that they have partners and private lives and, and things that aren't going that well, particularly at times. But then they have to put the mask on, you know, go into work. And they're not just going into work, they're putting their lives on the line. they have stood, you know, they've given their badge and their gun in when they go into a prison setting. So that vulnerability... And I think, for me, that's what I like about this show, that you see both sides to that narrative and you get an insight into, um, you know, how how tough this work is, but just the narrative for somebody, their day-to-day context, the same as, you know, a judge going into court, having to make decisions, well... their wife may have left them or, you know, they may have left their wife. And so all the personal aspect that sometimes we forget because we think just about it's a process for people and professionals rather than we're all human beings. And we go into everything with our own, uh, you know, challenges as well, the essence of being human. And I think they do that particularly well.
2: Right. We'll get into that in later episodes. We'll see that really um, really come to pass. But in this episode three, we meet... The amazing Dr. Wendy Carr, played by Anna Torv, who is doing one of the best Kate Blanchett impersonations that I've ever seen. Just the way that she holds herself and carries herself and and is clinical, yet, I don't know, I, I didn't find her off putting and cold. What did you think of that character, Dr. Wendy Carr? Is she based on somebody real? I think there was a, a female that it is based on, but I, I wasn't well, familiar. Well, the with first
3: her. female profiler was Jana Monroe. And she's fascinating, and uh, I know John Douglas specifically recruited her uh, because of her background and because of her skills and abilities as an FBI agent. And she's a good friend of mine, and wow, she's just so she's so elegant. I think she would be a great character study for this character, mm-hmm. um, and I believe that they, you know, they. Played up a little bit more some of the some of the academic versus law enforcement Definitely. contention in this, and I think it's it was part of reality at the time. There's um, you know a reluctance on the part of people in in education to sort of quote co- cooperate with the f b i because they don't want to be seen as narcs, they don't want to be seen as somebody that's stifling education or or stifling uh free speech so um they don't want to be seen in bed together period
4: well, I have a question for you, Lisa actually, just the way that you described her mm-hmm. that your word choice is just quite interesting, uh, oh okay. You know, that she, I think you said that she was cold and clinical. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't read her like that. I just right. thought she was professional. I felt that she was there to to perform a, a particular role. And, you know, it's just a, an observation that if she were a man sure. behaving in the same way, would we say that he was clinical and cold or would we say that he was being professional? I just I, wondered. I
2: hear that. Um, I think I'm sort of aggregating her entire performance throughout where she is able to st- to stay very objective because she's not in the field with them and she's not having birds thrown into fans in front of her face and all that. That she does continue to be um, very objective and telling them you guys can't get so, you know involved in all of these cases you have to stay on track so she does maintain kind of a rigor she has to because she's Uh, an academic right so there are stringent
4: boundaries of course yes and so she's just for me she's just bringing that and she's laying it out uh, as a way that she would any other probably probably you know clinical trial and she's trying to replicate a sort of a laboratory laboratory clinical condition within the sort of the messiness of right. law enforcement, which I think is always the rub, isn't it, right. Jim? Of That you can't replicate things, you can't simulate it, but you try to bring as much of that as possible. And for me, she, is, she just emulates uh, what it is that she really is trying to do. So she couldn't have those traits where she's messy and unboundaried and sort of non-compartmentalised and spilling out everywhere because she wouldn't be in that position if she were mm-hmm. that person.
3: Right. So I think what, Lisa, you're picking up is what – one of the teaching points of this series is that we discovered through the course of this process of developing the behavioral science unit, which would lead to the behavioral analysis unit, that that you can't just do academics. You can't just do empirical studies. That you have to – it's a three-legged stool. You have to actually do case consultations and education. And what that does is when you're doing the research, you apply it during the case consultations, you see if it works, and you teach it, but it's also teaching is a two-way street. So you throw the ideas out to the police. These are seasoned police officers or FBI agents that we'd be teaching with this stuff, and they would challenge us, and we'd be able to say, okay, well, this is why we believe it works. These are the guys that told us about it, and this is why they said they did what they did, and these are the cases where we applied it, and it worked. So by having that three-legged stool, you actually balance out aspects that would maybe make you myopic if you're just doing academic study, and I think that is the tension between them. And I think it, in the end, it, it, we needed that we tension, need it. Yeah, right? Absolutely. But on top of that, it was something that where we learned something that made this much more effective, and sort of because because guys like Douglas and Wrestler and and Roy Hazelwood because they were so dedicated to helping cops solve these difficult cases and bringing justice for the victims they kind of bucked a bunch of systems mm-hmm. both internally and externally and i thought they did a very good job of showing that in this show
4: and she personifies it that for me is you know what what the crux is she personifies that she's trying to create near perfect lab conditions in the messiness of law enforcement, which is always, you know, a massive challenge. And coming up with that methodology, you know, it was pioneering. And we talked about emulating that in the UK um, with a number of academics sort of saying, well, it's just not possible to replicate. And psychopaths are just so manipulative. You don't gain anything from it. I actually disagree with that because from knowing the FBI's work and working with people like Jim and Fitz and, uh, Robert Ressler and having listened to Roy Hazelwood on numerous occasions and, and read so much of the work, you know, I agree with the basic premise of this, that if you don't understand what crazy looks like, how do you get out in front of it? You you just cannot. It's just something that is nebulous, that you have no context to. And it's completely dehumanised. And that's, uh, you know, I think so much of a valid dialogue. And I still think that's probably some of the work that should have been done in the UK um, with the right parameters put around it because I think there's always something to gain. Even you put the measures in place, and I think we got into this a little bit before, but you have to put some countermeasures in place. But you're constantly checking and corroborating facts. And, of course, it's messy again because your human part gets involved, and that's what we see in this particular show. I think all those tensions are are well portrayed. Yeah, and I
3: think, speaking of the UK, um, when I went there, when they were ramping up CIOP, right I went there to help train and start that unit and
4: and that's the child exploitation online protection
3: yes uh, which which was which was sort of like the CAC crimes against children behavioral analysis unit and so when I was there I also went to Brams Hill where you have the more academic empirical study kind of people and they were having such they were at loggerheads with each other like they didn't play well together. I think it's literally what was happening 30 years ago in the in the behavioral science unit with when they were really starting out in this process. But what I think would have been best is if they found a way to put them all together in the same room and so that they weren't they were working together because that's two of the three legs that they really need and then they should have also have had training seminars as as a uh, complement to that, because that's another way to test what they're what they're finding out. But I thought that Sill was kind of myopic in terms of no, we can only talk about the empirical data. We don't want to hear anything about anecdotal casework, mm-hmm. and I think that's a major mistake because it's that's where you get the nuances,
4: right? And we tried to do this in the homicide prevention unit. I mean, mm-hmm. it really was. You know, we we're trying to create a. An intelligence cell that had academics working with police officers, working with researchers, Smart. working with analysts. Yeah. But the tensions were, you know, ran high.
3: I know. They and all want their own thing and they don't realize together you're smarter.
4: Absolutely. And what you can learn from each other and the end product. Um, but again, with the cuts, and we talked about that that last time, with all the cuts that were coming into the Metropolitan Police Service, were the first thing to go was the luxury of having a homicide prevention unit. Mm. And so that, for me, was, you know, a real challenge. It's incredibly unfortunate because we were trying to get out in front of things and, say, with domestic violence when we were spending a lot of time doing the psychological autopsies on the murders and the near misses and lower-level incidents looking for those patterns, so the same as they're looking for patterns here the patterns that were emerging were the things that we started asking victims about in the dash. And that led to a 58% homicide reduction rate, so year on year. You can't ever say it's one thing. There were actually multiple things happening at that time, a shifting culture. But 33 people less dead every year... And that for me is where investment should also be around prevention and the intervention side. But again, in cuts, it's the first thing to go because Mm -hmm. it's seen as a luxury and you have to deal with what the here and now is. And you go back into that reactive mode rather than using research and analysis to prevent crime. Yeah, in an intelligent way to prevent things.
1: Most weight loss plans are one size fits all. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. use promo code wondery today at shipstation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial that's shipstation.com promo code wondery
4: psychopaths are convinced that there's nothing wrong with them so these men are virtually impossible to study yet you have found a way in near perfect laboratory conditions hello ladies that's what makes this so exciting and potentially so far-reaching
2: one thing Dr. Wendy says when they're talking to her is that she works with white-collar captains of industry folks that she finds are psychopaths if they wear this mask of sanity. Did that – I mean, do you
4: agree with that?
3: Yeah. Actually, we, we call them CEO psychopaths.
4: Or psychopaths in suits. Yeah, there There's you go. There's a paper written on that.
3: And basically, it in order to get to the, to the position of captain of industry, many times you have to step on and hurt a lot of people. And – If you don't – if you have the the traits of a psychopath, that's really easy to do. If you care about people, it's a lot more difficult to do. And so there's an entire category of psychopathy that as one end of the spectrum. People who have all the traits of a psychopath but figure out a way to use it in the legitimate world, not committing violent crimes at least. Many of them do commit white collar crimes like Bernie Madoff would be a perfect example for decades. He's ripping off people, you know, pension funds and close friends of his and and all that, and living the high life, the whole thing was a fraud.
4: And looking at Enron, you know, it was former Arthur Anderson, and Enron collapsed because you had psychopaths at the top of it. And, you know, there is a a thing called corporate psychopathy, and it's about 4%. They estimate it's about 4% of CEOs and business leaders. I I would probably... uh, Think that it's higher than that, yeah. <laughs> because it depends on what questions you ask. And of course, you know those who understand the area of uh, psychopathy and Dr. Robert Hare's work, the um, PCLR, the Psychopathy Checklist. I mean, it's not used for me as much as it should be, and certainly not, you know, when you, when you haven't got crime being committed. But they say it's about one in a hundred are psychopaths or have psychopathic traits. I still think it's it's probably going to be higher than that, mm-hmm. and it's how you use those traits. It's the same as you know now we're getting we get into the age where everyone's an armchair detective and they say that someone's a narcissist, Well, actually you, most people have narcissistic traits
3: right, but they yeah, that doesn't make really, you a narcissist,
4: right. and so I think we have to be careful when we're bandying terms around mm-hmm. just because you know it depends on someone's knowledge base, and this is a very niche area in particular, and I think John Ronson, a journalist, has sort of mainstreamed it by writing the book, uh, well, and lots of TED Talks he's done. He was at CrimeCon as well, wasn't he, Jim, mm-hmm. if you remember? He wrote the book The Psychopath Test. Um, so it, it seems like something now, you know, when you hear in, in people's rhetoric, they say, oh, they're a right psychopath. But are we using the term in the right way? Right. That's, I still believe that there are probably more psychopaths than, than the 4%, and certainly we see it in in business leaders, and if you read the paper, The Psychopaths in Suits, um, it's, it's very illuminating.
2: I certainly feel like I've met plenty of them in my line of work. But anyway, um, okay, so we want to move on a little bit. Sure. Um, one thing, one quote I loved is, narcissists don't go to the doctor because they don't think there's anything wrong with them, hence they're hard to, to study.
3: And... They think they're smarter than the doctor, so why go to them? Yeah. They're heroes
4: in their own heads, right? Yeah. Well, heroes are all victims. I mean, than anything sort of in between. But I think the claim of victimhood comes in quite a lot when the wheel comes off and the pressure comes on. But the heroes in the other sense of they're smarter and because of the traits that they have, they wouldn't understand it in that way at all.
2: So at some point in this um, in this episode, they've been asked to consult on this case in Sacramento where a woman and her dog were murdered. And when the in the previ- in episode two, they give a profile that turns out not to be correct, and they have to sort of correct course as another woman and dog are murdered.
3: Um, yeah, and I think that's a good point. And you see it in in every Criminal Minds episode right. where they have to um, sort of rejigger the profile, but it's. Basically, it's because you do a profile based on the information that's available at that time. And every profile that we ever write says this is based on the information known at this point. If we find out more, this could change because, again, it's not a perfect picture of who the killer is, but it is a basically very educated guess about certain aspects of it. Until all the information is in, because people are dying, you don't sit back and say, "Okay, well, we'll wait till it's over, and then ten years from now we'll give you a profile." We say at this point we can make a judgment call based on these, but then that will be more and more and more educated as time goes on. And unfortunately, the process is such that there that especially with very sophist- criminally sophisticated and forensically f- sophisticated offenders that those people are able to evade justice for a longer period of time. And so, unfortunately, that means that more and more people are vulnerable victims for them. And so the process is very, very difficult and disturbing because we know bodies are dropping and we're trying to get them, you know, the information that will help stop the killer.
4: And it's an imperfect world. You have to make assessments and determinations based on what you have before you. And as Jim said, it's very dynamic, it's evolving. And if you have somebody who's very prolific, so you don't sit back. But what you do say is that if something comes in, overrides, you know, either through science or otherwise what's been said, go with the science. So, you know, threat assessment, risk assessment, profiling, it's all imperfect as a process. You're doing the best that you can based on your experiential knowledge, because that is a really important part, as well as statistics and as well as what the information is that, that, that you're seeing. And, you know, you want more primary information. more primary information, the better, rather than someone's account and maybe a distorted lens as well. And, of course, these guys were starting out on this journey. And I kind of like that they put that in, that it's, you know, the the evolution of it, that it's not perfect from the start. There's lots of flaws in the information that's given. There's flaws in people's determinations and the humanistics element of it.
3: Yeah, and I think the other part of it is that Sometimes it's really difficult when you're doing this job to articulate the exact reasons why you believe you should be doing A, B, or C and not 40,000 other potential avenues of investigation. And it comes from educating your gut through experience, through working cases, through studying these offenders, through talking to them, through talking to law enforcement or around the world. All that data comes into your brain and you develop a skill in letting your subconscious crunch that data. And then it tells you what you need to do. When you're confident enough to rely on those really trained instincts, um, you become much more of an efficient and accurate profiler. So it's a skill and you learn it over time. And what I was saying earlier about it being sort of a guess at at that point, at that point in time when this, you know, episode three, um, they're so they're, they're in nascent stages here. They're they're literally trying to figure out their way. And since then, it has become much more of a rigorous. Again, back then, they would eventually interview 38 offenders. And that's what they based the original body of work on. But now that number is well over 1,500 offenders.
2: Well, Bill and um, oh my God. So Bill and Holden, they quickly rejiggered their profile. And the minute that they hear that there is a bystander who has kind of shown up at both of these crime scenes, they're like, that's our guy, and they kind of zero in on him. Is that something, is that a thing, like a bystander effect, or, or that somebody who seems to be a bystander is actually the...
3: Well, in certain types of crimes... Offenders will want to experience the aftermath. They'll they'll insert themselves into the investigation. Um, one, it's to test and see are they going to be suspicious of me? Do they know anything about me? Um, did I make any mistakes that I can correct the next time I do this? Um, and another thing is just wanting to be involved. I mean, many of these people are cop buffs. They they literally hang out in cop bars. They tried. Yeah, that's, tried to, yeah, that's yeah. what I read. Yeah. <clears throat> they tried to. Um, become cops and they couldn't. And so there's a whole bunch of different types of reasons why somebody might want to insert themselves into the investigation. So when they heard bystander at same person at both crime scenes, they said... Okay, that's a red flag.
4: It's a red flag at the very least, isn't it? I mean, whether it's somebody trying to get, they're watching and they're enjoying that moment, as as Jim said, or whether it's trying to get information and intelligence out, whether it's trying to put information and intelligence in
3: misdirection,
4: misdirection, yeah, and misinformation. Um, But that peaked immediately as a red flag. And again, you know, we're hearing their decision making and their rationale for why they think it's A rather than B which, you know, you rarely understand in, uh, I think, in in not just necessarily TV shows, but also in real-life investigations, you know, people talking through the decision-making.
3: Right, and that's one of the things that we did when we interviewed these offenders, is we actually asked them, well, what were you thinking when you did that? And why did you do that? How did you come to the conclusion that this was the way you were going to do it? And how did that change over time so that we can then look at future cases and say, oh, he's at this point in his development, so what he's going to do next is X, Y, and Z. So that's how we, we look at pre-offense behavior, we look at offense behavior during the crime, and we look at post-offense behavior. And many times, like saying this guy will definitely insert himself into the investigation, that's a post-offense behavior. And so we're able to use that to actually weed out non-relevant suspects Mm -hmm. and focus in on the relevant suspects.
2: When they actually go to talk to this guy, whose name is Dwight, um, what I love about what Fincher does, and I think it plays beautifully into apparently what FBI agents do, is he focuses on so many details in the room, details that are important and not important. And they notice a dog leash, but no dog. And they notice just certain things. About the setup where he's sleeping, where the mother and her boyfriend are sleeping, and they just—it makes you feel almost like hyper aware of everything mm. in the room. And I'm just wondering if that's something you have to have as oh. a profile, just just to be taking everything in. And then, as you say, Jim, your absolutely your gut, your your subconscious is kind of processing and filtering it all out.
3: Right at the beginning. I don't know if you felt this, but at the beginning, I thought I had to think through every single thing in the moment, and it's overwhelming, right? You you shut down, because there's so many different possibilities. Well, is that magazine important? Is that book important? Is that cup of coffee important? Is that glass of wine? Is that empty beer can? But if you take it all in, and you let your subconscious do that math, because, you know, literally, we think in hundreds or thousands of a second, but... Our subconscious does it in trillions of a second, so billion times faster. And so you really need to rely on that subconscious being able to do the math for you. And it's really amazing what you then, you know, the light bulb switches on in your head and say, aha, that's this. This is what happened.
4: Normally at three o'clock in the morning where suddenly it makes sense. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it. it is that. And that's why it's very difficult to articulate, you know, a formulaic process right. of trusting and believing your own instinct and your, your your gut and your judgment of how you get to that. And sometimes it's not particularly clear of A and B and C, you get to D. But the more cases or the more exposure that you have, it's the same as doing risk assessment. Right. Because you know how things... Uh, tend to look, filled, but the nuanced detail is so important. It's the micro stuff, um, you know, equally with risk assessments that you have to give your decision-making on. And normally it's the the smaller things, not the bigger things, that tell you far more, or the gaps, or the things that aren't present, not always what is present, too. Right,
3: but once you see it in your mind... Like once it becomes crystal clear, like, oh, this is what it means. This is what happened. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And and that's a great process. And I love that about being a profiler, Mm -hmm. just being able to put things together that, you know, some people after the fact, they say, of course that's easy, but they didn't see all the mess around it. And when you draw that path through it for them, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But there, there were so many potential branches off of that path that it's mind boggling and that's the thing. That's the key. Not listening to all that noise and just actually relying on your instincts to to cover all the details for you and then decide this is what we need to do or this is who we need to look at.
2: Well, as we come to the end of episode three, um, they convinced Dr. Wendy to come on down to Quantico and work with them for a while and process all of this data that they're bringing in from the field and... And uh, so that's where we are. Anything else you guys want to talk about on uh, episode
4: three? Well, just to mention, obviously, the Dwight um, serial killer story, uh, you know, how that evolves. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, these cases look absolutely, uh, you know, heinous, which they are. But when you understand his experience, his real life experience and his relationship with his mother and the dynamics of, you know, his childhood and, and what's gone on for him, again, it humanizes it. And it's not an excuse for what he has done, but it gives you that narrative and context, which I think is really important to understand. And that domestic violence, that child abuse, which is so damaging because damaged people, unfortunately, will, without an intervention, harm and damage others. And so right again, you know, centre stage, we have domestic violence. And, you know, it's I think sometimes it's referred to as sort of tumultuous or volatile um you know these these triggers, but we really do need to name it because right again, we have somebody who is damaged Absolutely. to a point that then he goes out and reenacts that damage to others. He is killing his mother over and over again because he can't stand up to her in in his real you know life and everyday life
2: and that's so interesting because they contrast him with Kemper, who also hated his mother and also killed her literally and over and over again, but these are such two such different. Guys, you know, Dwight, you know, they, they crack him like a you know, like a stale cracker. I mean, they are able to just like crack him right open and get him to admit it. Um and he has no real self awareness of why he did it or what his urges are, and then you have somebody like Kemper who could could write a thesis about why he did what he right. did. It's just interesting. And it's the
3: intelligent ones that are the scariest because they're able to manipulate the system. They're they're smart enough to get around it and they get away with it for a lot longer. But I think that Part of what you're saying, Laura, is that when you have that kind of violence in the home, when you have that sort of unrelenting just abuse that's going on, that sometimes that can be – it can give you sort of a a predictive kind of model. In other words, that there is a risk there, but if – if you intervene you could actually prevent right so this kind of thing that you know if somebody is constantly being you know physically and emotionally abused that that they would want to strike out against that and if they feel powerless against that the source of that abuse they may strike out at somebody who's more vulnerable and so If you can recognize those things, then maybe you can intervene and stop that from happening. And that's, you know, the whole idea of predictive policing that's coming up, that people are, I think you did it in the Homicide Prevention Unit, and I think that, you know, different police departments now are trying to infuse that in to hopefully prevent crime. It's
4: not seeing things as a sympathy factor. You know, When someone says, oh, they were abused as a child, then you you ultimately feel, that that could be a sympathy factor but without an intervention it could well be uh you know that risk factor and as i often say in all my training sessions serial killers do not grow off trees they they don't just wake up one day and do what they do there's a whole continuum and so the intervention around family abuse and family violence at sort of a far earlier stage the 0 to 3 and the next tranche, that's where we need to be focusing intervention models and around a family, not just the one, you know, the child that's causing the problem. The child's causing a problem because of their environment. And so there are these red flags and there's very clear opportunities to intervene. And with a successful intervention, they may well go on to have healthy uh, relationships and attune and attach and develop empathy. But I think here you have a classic case. What they show is a classic case where... Um, He is so downtrodden psychologically, emotionally, you know, physically, in every way that his leakage is going out and, uh, you know, objectifying women, but he's killing his mother over and over again. And it's no real surprise when you understand that narrative. And actually, you see the two agents, their strategy and tactics. You know, I don't think they just broke him open, as you said. They intelligently understood how to rapport with him, how to get him to talk to them in a way that was non-confrontational, that they understood how and why he behaved in that way. And that's why he started talking to them.
3: And that's a good point. I think, Lisa, you asked the question, the killers see profilers as friends Mm -hmm. and well, if you're good at building rapport, yes, absolutely, because they come in as non-judgmental. When these offenders think that everybody hates them and reviles them, they come in and they say, we're, "We're here to help. We're building a human bridge of of kindness, a bond between them." And so they do feel like that. And and I will say that with people like Kemper, what he really wanted was that filiation. He wanted to feel like I am accepted by these guys who are revered in law enforcement and I am equal to them. And I think some of the things that he did just were where he reaches out and grabs, um, what's his name? Holden. Holden. Holden, When he reaches out and grabs Holden's throat and, I mean, yeah. the, uh, you know, you, you could see that, take that he was scared of death. breath there
4: just <laughs> rethinking that yeah. scene because it is, you have a visceral yeah. reaction to it. Yeah. I, I just want to be clear that I'm actually talking
2: about two different things. I mean, when they work, Dwight. I mean, they really go after him and they goad him and goad him until they get him to break and admit. But obviously, if you've already got a killer who's already been convicted and like you say, Jim, is, you know, not never going to get out no matter what. It's it's probably a different. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to 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 use.
3: Yeah. What you want to do is you look at their behavior as an indicator of their psychology and or their psychopathy. And then you use the best route to get into that. Now, Somebody who, like a Kemper, who fancies himself an intellectual, if you talk down to him, he's just going to fight back. But if you prop him up and say, We're looking for your keen insight, then he's going to be like, Yeah, you recognize the fact that I'm that smart and that I can actually be self aware. Whereas the other guy who's totally unself aware, there's no point in saying, You know, let's talk about why you're doing what you're doing. Right you know, it's just not going to work. You have to convince him that you have the evidence that's going to prove what he did, what he did and why he did it. And so there's your, you know, that, that's a difference. And that's the nuance of being a profiler. It's the ability to read the individual sitting in front of you based on his behavior at the crime scene, his victim choice, his methodologies, his signature, and his behavior right now. All those things go into it, and you come up with the way. And I think I think this series really shows very well how that happens and and why it's necessary.
4: And them trying out different tactics, you know, and realizing that some with a particular type of offender isn't going to work. That you've got to go, you can't go confrontational. You've got to start to rapport. And, you know, the Kemper type of person, you mentioned being equal to Jim. Actually, he sees himself as much more, doesn't he? Because right. the power and control play about putting his hand to the throat is really, I'm the one in charge here. He, it's kind of like that he's a reestablishing the pecking order mm-hmm. that with his physicality, he really is the one in charge. And they both know that, right? Right. Mm.
2: Scary. Creepy. All right. Well, that wraps up episode three. And that was awesome, you guys, to take us through so much um, I know we didn't get to the episode till a few minutes in but it was so great for you to lay the groundwork on what we're watching and and what you know what's important about yeah, it. Yeah, I
3: think that's the the great thing about this series. It's so engaging because you're learning so much about I think what so many people know of because of criminal minds, they now know why and how and who. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool.
4: And I would definitely recommend if you haven't seen the 1986 film Manhunter by Robert Harris, definitely look it up and and watch it because that was really, for me, one of the first movies that started depicting um, behavioral analysis and profiling mm-hmm. in yeah, 1986. Yeah, I have seen that one.
2: I've, only, I've seen the Jonathan Demi, obviously, Signs of the Lambs, which I think is so much, flat. you know, got a lot of flash and got a lot of form to it, but I'd love to go back and, and watch.
3: Yeah, it was I good. Michael Mann did a great job in yeah. it. And one other book I would recommend by my friend Roy Hazelwood is the evil that men do and unfortunately both Robert Ressler and Roy Hazelwood and another friend Ed Sulzbach all passed away last year and those were all three very legendary FBI profilers and friends and amazing guys and they helped move this science forward to be what it is today and that's why there are so many people who want to be forensic psychologists or profilers uh, because of the work these men did and i just think the show is a great tribute to them
2: can i give one more uh recommendation sure. i'm watching something on amazon prime called fearless and it's a series that's st- that stars helen mccrory um and it's Wonderful, um, Helen McCrory
4: from Peaky Blinders.
2: That's right, which I haven't watched, but um, I really recommend you guys watch it. It's a it's a it's a great uh, procedural, and uh, check
4: it out. What's it about, Lisa? Can it you just give is, a little?
2: Um, well, she's a defense attorney who's trying to solve, um, trying to get her client exonerated for a murder that he didn't commit, and so it's a whole big murder mystery, and uh, it's just it's fantastic. Michael Gambon is in it, and it's just got just a fantastic cast.
3: Well, speaking of Peaky Blinders, Laura, I tried to watch that because I really heard such great things about it, but I, I literally could not understand the dialogue. You
4: need subtitles, I right? I do.
3: I really do. Yeah.
4: The language I mean, is quite hard, uh, and certainly uh, you know, I would probably think for Americans even harder because of the accents yeah. just so heavy and thick. But you could put the subtitles on. Yeah, but I click, don't know. Cl- that, click them on because it's really worth watching. Yeah,
3: but I mean, I really think that the language is so different from what I know as English. You know, there's so many different words that they use. I just didn't understand what they were saying.
4: Yeah, it's one of those that you've, you've got to persevere with. And I, I would definitely recommend putting on the subtitles mm. because it's so brilliantly uh, shot. The narrative's fantastic. They're just going to, I think it's season three. I think they've just shot it and it's just about to, uh, to land if it hasn't done already by the time this drops. And Helen McCrory is fantastic in it. She is really, uh, you know, a, a standout performance. So yeah. try and... Did you manage to see it, Lisa? No, or I started you,
2: watching it and it was so tense. You, <laughs> you found turn it, it too
4: difficult. So just, it wasn't the language for you, It's the it, it, tension. It was of, just
2: the tension, yeah. I, I, I got to watch it, though. Everybody I know loves it.
4: It's pretty gory, I've got, I've got to say. Yeah. You know, not that any of what we discuss isn't. But, um, yeah, it's pretty difficult to watch in parts, yeah. too.
2: All right. Um, <clears throat>
3: sorry. There's one other series that I started watching, uh, which I thought was pretty cool, also set in Great Britain. It's called Snatch on Crackle. So it's on uh, sonypictures.com. And it's a lighter sort of touch, but it sort of has the... um. Now you see them kind of feel...
2: It's based on the movie, right? I, I think get, it's based on the movie bit, that Guy Ritchie directed. It was a fantastic movie. Oh, yeah, yeah.
3: Okay, I didn't I didn't know about the movie, but yeah. I really found... I found this series just sort of... Um, well, they sent me a, uh, a think to review it for uh, consideration for awards this season. Mm-hmm. And I really... Of the new ones that I saw, I really enjoyed that one. I just thought it was smart cool. and hip and yeah. And it's fresh. a series? Or it's yeah, it's a, called Snatch, season one. It's up on Crackle now.
4: Definitely look that up. I haven't yeah. heard of that. But I have heard of the movie by Guy Ritchie. Right, I did right. watch that. Right. All righty.
3: All right. Well, thank you for listening to Real Crime Profile.
4: If you like our podcast, there are a few things that you can do. You can take two minutes and go to Apple Podcast and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all Real Crime Profile offers and promotion and our sponsors in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook and like our Facebook page. And one last thing is please tell all your friends, family, and colleagues about us and spread the Real Crime Profile word. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you.
3: Real Crime Profile is produced and edited by Paul Francis Sullivan. Sound engineered by Terrell Parham. Music composed by Simba Tsumba. Logo art by Jim Clementi. Real Crime Profile is produced by XG Productions and distributed by Wondery.
4: For advice and support if you're experiencing stalking in the UK, you can contact Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service. You can go on the website www.paladinservice.co.uk. In the US, if you're experiencing domestic abuse and need advice, safety, shelter or counselling, call Genesis, the 24-hour hotline. Go on their website, www.genesisshelter.org, or the Domestic Violence Hotline on 800-799-7233.
3: hey prime members you can listen to real crime profile ad-free on amazon music download the amazon music app today before you go tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey the wait is over
4: so far you're not losing the only thing you're losing is my patience
3: quickly i see that the queen of the courtroom is back i didn't do anything
4: You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that.
3: New cases.
4: She wanted to fight me? Leave her alone. Okay. so, um. This is not a so. This is a period.
1: Classic Judy.
4: Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything.
3: (laughs) Judy Justice, only on Freebie.